huge thank you to NYX for helping me bring you today's episode. If you don't know what NYX is, it is a loungewear company that has absolutely everything you need so you can be comfortable on an everyday basis in your loungewear. Let's be honest, most bras are just so uncomfortable with their sharp wires and their straps that are rarely ever truly adjustable and the lack of extender hooks in the back. NYX has completely changed the game and they are devoted to bringing women comfortable everyday bras and sports bras. I personally have five bras from NYX already and I absolutely love every single one of them. And something that I love about NYX is their accurate representation of women. Let's be honest, not all of our stomachs are smooth and line-free and our legs are not completely airbrushed on an everyday basis and all of their models look just like you and me and it just makes me so happy that they have models who look like normal people and they don't photoshop what their models look like and the texture of their skin and thanks to nyx you can get 15 dollars off whenever you use the link in my show notes so you can get an even more affordable bra from them everyone welcome back to the dough identify podcast if you are new here my name is Haley, and in this podcast we try to advocate for unidentified victims and today i have a doozy of a case to say the least normally my episode show notes are like one page long and maybe even like half a page long if it's a smaller case and this episode has three pages long of notes And to me, I'm a little bit scared. I don't know if I should do like a part one or part two, but I feel like it would just get way more confusing if I do a part two. So I'm going to try to go ahead and just get it all done in one episode. So bear with me. And if you have any questions at all, please, number one, look at the sources that I link in my episode show notes. I always link sources. And if you ever find out that I like haven't done sources, please let me know on Instagram because I definitely intend to with every single episode because this is like not my own investigative work. So I need to, you know, link sources. But two, if you have any questions, please go ahead and join the group that I link below as well as message me on Facebook or Instagram because I'm more than happy to go ahead and talk with you about this case. So this is a long case, so let's just go ahead and get into it without me rambling or anything. So the El Dorado Jane Doe was a woman who was murdered by her former partner, James McAlphin, on July 10th, 1991 in El Dorado, Arkansas. This case is one of the most baffling Jane Doe cases, probably after the Annandale Jane Doe, which was my first episode, if you haven't listened to that, because we just like have no idea who this woman is, but we know so much about her, and there are so many of her friends who, you know, lived with her, who were in romantic relationships with her, and even they don't know her identity. They just know of her aliases that she went by. And so in this episode, we're going to cover what we do know about her, such as like her demographics. And we're also going to learn about some of the stories that she told people. And we're going to tell you a little bit about her life. So first and foremost, let's talk about what this Jane Doe looked like and some identifying features about her. 
Thankfully, as I said, we do know a lot of her friends, and so there's a ton of pictures of her online from when she was alive. And there are also autopsy images if you think that this may be your family member, if you want to see her face in high definition. But as I said, this was in the early 1990s, and so camera quality just like wasn't fantastic by then, especially if they were taken with like a handheld camera, which is what a lot of her images kind of looked like. And the images from authorities and her friends are usually headshots of driver's licenses or jail intake images or pictures taken by her friends. Other than those images, here's what we know about her. She was a white female between the ages of 18 and 30 years old. And in the pictures of when she was alive, she looked a lot older, but her post-mortem images look as though she was in her early 20s. So I don't know if that makes sense. Like with her hair all done and with her makeup all on, she looks like she would probably be in her mid-20s, but her autopsy images make her look a lot younger because she like isn't all done up and stuff and she was pretty tall for a woman she was 510 to 511 she was definitely very tall and that's something that someone would probably notice about her very quickly in all of her pictures she had light blonde hair like almost platinum blonde hair and At the time of her death, it was actually her natural light brown color. I feel like it was more of like a dark blonde to light brown just from the images, but obviously certain lightings can portray hair color or just like any color for that matter differently. So the medical examiner said light brown. So let's go with light brown. And her eyes were blue and everyone who knew her said that her eyes were like strikingly blue. She also had a ton of freckles all over her and in her autopsy images, to me it looked like she had a bit of sun damage. Like I feel like everyone either has sun damage or knows someone with sun damage or they just have like deep set, you know, like freckles and stuff and maybe even some like rough skin texture because of the sun damage and it looked like she had that in the images. Obviously, I haven't seen her in person, and so I'm not sure if that's 100% the case, but just keep in mind it looked like she had been, you know, spending time outdoors for a lot of her life. She also had a small birthmark or a scar beneath her left breast, and what's really sad is her right eye had scars on it, like on the eyelid and underneath her eye, and her the left side of her waist also had some scars, which the medical examiner or reports, I'm not sure who came up with this theory, but people believe that she had a life of violence. And we do know that her ex-boyfriend who ended up murdering her did beat her and she had to go to the emergency room many times. And so he could have been the reason for those scars. And another thing that's unique about her is that she had three piercings in her right ear and they say two in her left. I honestly couldn't even see the ones in her left, but you could definitely see them in her right ear with the autopsy image. And so on to the investigation and this is just so insane. 
So police found in their investigation that she had resided primarily in the southern United States, and this is Minneapolis, Minnesota, Dallas, Texas, Houston, Texas, Irving, Texas, Garland, Texas, Shreveport, Louisiana, Virginia as the state, Oklahoma as the state, Little Rock, Arkansas, and lastly where she was found, El Dorado, Arkansas. And this Jane Doe wasn't exactly the most upstanding citizen when she was using her aliases, especially in 1990s standards. So first, she stole the identity of Cheryl Ann Wick, and she was also arrested in Minneapolis under this same name for writing a bad check. And Cheryl's ID was actually found within the Jane Doe's belongings at the time of her death. And so police notified the family of Cheryl Wick, and they told them that she was dead, and they quickly discovered that her identity had been stolen by the Jane Doe when Cheryl's sister called her crying, and Cheryl thankfully answered. Cheryl told authorities that she did not know the El Dorado Jane Doe's identity, and she just said that she believes the Jane Doe stole her ID when she was a dancer in Minneapolis, which means the Jane Doe likely spent some time there. They also found restaurant menus from Texas and Virginia in her possession. Later on in the investigation, police found several other aliases that this Jane Doe went by other than Cheryl Ann Wicks. She went by Kelly Carr, C-A-R-R, and sometimes she spelled it K-A-R-R when she lived in Dallas in early 1991. And she also went by Cheryl Kaufman, Sharon Wiley, Shannon Wiley, Helen Stenner, and Mercedes with no last name. And you'll find that a lot of news outlets refer to her as Mercedes rather than El Dorado Jane Doe. And I'm really not sure why. I, I That just seems to be the name that they like to call her. So that likely was probably her stage name or the name that she gave out when she was doing other acts. Police also found that she had been arrested for partaking in sex work and for public lewdness, also known as indecent exposure. She worked as a topless dancer when she was in Little Rock, and there she told her friends that she was from Florida. They also found out that she could have been involved with the murder of Dwayne McHorkendale, who witnesses say was killed by a white male, a white female, and a black male in Chandler, Oklahoma. Police have not been able to rule out this Jane Doe as a suspect, but a lot of people think that she was linked to this crime. So just to kind of reorganize, because I know that that was a lot, especially for a Jane or John Doe case. So she was tied to Texas, Louisiana, Florida, Arkansas, Virginia, Oklahoma, and Minnesota. And she told people that her name was Cheryl Ann Wick, Cheryl Kaufman, Kelly Carr, Sharon Wiley, Shannon Wiley, Helen Stenner, and Mercedes. This case can be very confusing, and I honestly cannot believe that this Jane Doe didn't get confused when she was like telling people different stories or different names, because this is so much to even remember. It's crazy. 
So now on to the several stories that she told people. And just to warn you, these kind of jump around in time periods. But I do want to share them because they could clue us into who she was from and who she may be. Or it could jog the memory of someone who knew her and have some leads about her. First, which is probably the craziest one, her former boyfriend, who may have been her pimp as well, and who also killed her by gunshot in the Whitehall Motel, was named James McAlphin. And he says that he knows her real identity and will only state it if he gets $4,000. And specifically, he wants $2,000 up front before he tells the quote-unquote truth and $2,000 after he tells the quote-unquote truth. And to kind of prove his credibility, he gave some clues to show he really does know who she is. And so this is what he told detectives. He told them that she had a mother and a sister who lived in Florida. And he also said that she hides her identity because her lifestyle would have embarrassed the family that she left behind. He said that the father of her children was in Fort Worth, Texas. He said, and I quote, Mercedes was on the street since the age of 16. A black guy she fell for allowed her to be pimped in Fort Worth and Dallas. These guys had other young girls, some kidnapped by force. These girls ended up across the border in El Paso or Brownsville, traded for Mexican girls if they were rebellious. Most of the loyal girls were trusted. Mercedes was one of those girls because of her relationship with a pimp named J.D., whom she ran away with, with Tyrone. When I found out, I took Mercedes and ran for Louisiana. This and the things done with Tyrone were the reason for her alias name. End quote. He also said she was friends with the Fort Worth Three when they were captives, and I just feel like this story is so wild. He also said, um, and I just found this in one source, that she was kidnapped at a young age, but then she was set free. It's very confusing, but police don't believe much of what he has told them, and a lot of people think that he's just, like, filled with BS. And a part of me thinks so as well, but I think it's interesting that he refers to her as Mercedes, but also we need to keep in mind that this man literally sent her to the emergency room several times and killed her because she moved on to have a relationship with another man. This man is not a good human being and I'm very reluctant to trust anything he says. And the second story that I want to tell you is she lived with a friend after she broke up with McAlphin and this friend said that the Jane Doe told her that she was a stripper and that she was from out of town. And she said that her and her mother didn't get along and that her mom was raising the Jane Doe's two kids. She also remembers her saying that one was a daughter specifically, but couldn't remember if she said she had two daughters or just like one daughter, one boy, so on and so forth. The third story is that she told people she was involved with the mafia and that she was part of the witness protection program. Kathy Phillips told David Lohr for a Huffington Post article that there were rumors that she was wanted for bank robberies on the East Coast, and she told some people that she had been with a black male at a truck stop, which is, you know, kind of an interesting quote to say, 
And she said that this black male made her go up to trucks and make contact with the truck drivers and that the black male actually shot and killed one of the truck drivers and that they were on the run for that. This could have been the Chandler, Oklahoma case that I referred to of Dwayne McCorkendale that is still unsolved to this day, but I just think it's really interesting that she told people that. And it does make me kind of think that she could have been involved. And fourth, this Jane Doe was known to volunteer with the Salvation Army in El Dorado, Arkansas, where she later on was murdered. While she was volunteering, she told someone that her daughter was taken by Child Protective Services, also called CPS, and in some states, I believe this is Department of Human Services or DHS. So, kind of all the same thing, but just keep that in mind. And she told them that she was unable to get her daughter back because she was living under a false identity. And unfortunately, police were not able to verify this story because all of the records from this period have been destroyed. So we're not able to confirm that she actually lived in a homeless shelter in Dallas. And these were all the stories that I felt like were substantial enough to mention that like could give people clues on where she was and what she was doing whenever she lived in the several cities and states that I mentioned. In the states that I mentioned earlier, those were states that she had been tied to um, based off of like the police investigation and that she told other people. And... I'm not even going to go on a rant where I complain that people submit women who are 5'2 as a possible identity when this woman was nearly 6 feet tall, but I am going to say please be smart about when you send in possible matches. The police on this case work so very hard and they don't, you know, take this lightly and they've been accused of that where they, you know, they've been accused of not taking this case very seriously and considering that, you know, there's a detective being willing to do substantial interviews with people, I feel like they're doing a really great job, and it's not their fault that this Jane Doe had so many different aliases and was tied to so many different states. It's super confusing to even keep track of on paper, let alone in your heads as you're, you know, interviewing people and are trying to track down her movements. So, thankfully, in 2019, a second cousin of the victim in Alabama was identified using forensic genealogy, also known as DNA. She unfortunately did not recognize the Eldorado Jane Doe, but acknowledged a family resemblance. The genealogist working the case was also able to identify her father as a descendant of a man named Daniel Wood and a woman named Mammy Carter. The first name is spelled M-A-M-I-E or Mommy Carter. I'm not really sure. And these two lived in Virginia and had nine children between 1916 and 1936. The couple is now deceased and they were Christina, who is the second cousin of this Eldorado Jane Doe. They were Christina's great-grandparents. Investigators are actively working on her family tree to get answers. And I think that they are, you know, coming to a head on who she could have been or at least who could have been her parents. Today, 
James McAlphin is living free. He was released in October 2020 for her murder. And to me, it is so unfortunate that he still claims to know her identity and he won't say a word if he doesn't get money for it. I just feel like that is so selfish. In a way, I could understand if he was in prison and was not able to make money and he wanted some money, you know, like to buy snacks and everything that you can buy in prison. In a way, I can understand that. But being set free and being able to have a job and live your life and still demanding that the police wire you $4,000 with very specific demands on the order in which you receive those $4,000, I just feel like it's ridiculous. And I think that he is so selfish for taking her life and then also claiming that he knows her identity when he either doesn't or he does and he just like doesn't feel like saying it. There are also 56 women who have been ruled out as the El Dorado Jane Doe, and there are even more, I believe, because I was looking through NamUs, and I was looking at some women who really looked like her, and there were some comparisons done in other people who were ruled out, but they're not necessarily on her rule out list, if that makes sense. And to see that, and I just figured this out, which says a lot, you, if you make a login on NamUs, you are able to look at different comparisons. You're not able to see that if you're not logged in. So I have made a NamUs account and I will continue to do that for all of the cases that I cover. This case is absolutely iconic in the Jane and John Doe community. It's one of like the poster child cases such as the Walker County Jane Doe where there are so many people talking about it and whenever you think of a Jane and John Doe, you think of this case probably. And it's just so interesting to me and I'm interested in hearing what you all have to say about it. So please message me on Instagram, which is at the Doe Identify Podcast. I personally think that she may have come from a family who didn't accept her in some way and that she really was a mom and had children who were being watched by their grandmother. And I think keeping in mind that she could have been from the South could help us identify her one day because, you know, it kind of like gives us more of a region of where we should look for family members who were never reported missing. And for this episode, I spoke to Trisha, who runs the Help Identify Eldorado Jane Doe Facebook page. She helped me weed through some people, and she actually taught me that name is trick, where if you log in, you can look at different comparisons that have been ruled out. And I recommend going to her Facebook page if you ever have any questions. I can almost guarantee that Trisha can answer them. She is a total expert in this area. Trisha and I also spoke about some of the crazy comparisons that people made. So if you see those in the Facebook group that she runs, those are not a reflection of her personal opinions. In fact, she goes through all the time and says, nope, not her. Nope, not her. So please just like understand that's not Trisha's opinions. And there are also some images of the Jane Doe that people have retouched with apps that I highly recommend looking at. I'm not using those in my episode art since they are not the ones released by police because I really just try to keep my episodes just like as friendly to investigations and also organizations like the DNA Doe Network. So I personally am just going to continue using the images that they have put out, but please go ahead and look at those images that have been retouched. 
At the end of the day, the El Dorado Jane Doe was not the most upstanding citizen I have covered, but I still think she deserves her name back, and I think her children especially deserve to know what happened to their mom. I think that there are probably a lot of questions in her family, or at least with her children, where, you know, they want to know who their mom actually was and what happened to her, because they probably have no idea who their mom was and where she ended up. They probably, you know, just think that their mom doesn't even, like, want to contact them, which is so heartbreaking to think about. But thankfully, I think we are getting closer to knowing who her family was, and I'm praying that we will just, like, find in, like, our news sources and find on Facebook that we finally know her real identity. And I'm kind of anxious to see if her real name was anything close to the names that she went by, such as, like, Cheryl or Shannon. And something that I was thinking about Whenever it comes to the Sharon and Shannon Wiley, it kind of seems like she may have stumbled and like told people that her name was like Shannon or Sharon, even though she had taken these women's identity. I can't help but wonder if like her name was Sharon and so she like stumbled and meant to say Sharon. And I also feel like Cheryl, Shannon, Sharon are all very similar and so I can't help but wonder if in there is somewhere very similar to her real name. But I'm not going to cover any theories in this because I personally just think they're all wrong from what I've come across. A lot of people speculate that she was a child of a murder victim and something random just like happened to her and then she just like came about and turned into who she was whenever she you know, knew all these people, and I just, like, don't think that's the case just based off of what so many people said about her and all the stories that she told people. I also don't really believe what James McAlphin said, and so I don't know. I'm just anxious to see who she actually was and what her name was. But that is everything that I have for you all on this case. I'm sure this episode is going to be a bit on the longer side, And I hope you all listened to it when you were like doing laundry or something to kind of pass the time. So thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I will be back soon and I have been contacting so many people to see if they would like to collaborate with me or if I can interview some of the people who run the Jane and John Doe pages because I just really believe that they are the lifeblood of you know, sharing the faces of Jane and John Doe's because an organization can do one thing, but when you create Facebook groups, I feel like that is like some of the most helpful things you can do for a case. So stay tuned to my other episodes and thank you so much for listening to the El Dorado Jane Doe's story. I'm so excited to announce that Chewy has partnered with me to bring this week's podcast episode to you guys. And the reason I'm so excited is because I have personally been using Chewy to supply my dog, Ranger, with food for over three years, which is way longer than I even thought about having a podcast. And so I personally love Chewy here. 
And the reason I love it so much is because they have such a wide selection of products. They have products for just about any type of pet you could possibly have legally. And they have a great program called the Auto Ship Program. And with Chewy's Auto Ship Program, you can set up a schedule for your pet's food, treats, or whatever you want to give them every single month to come straight to your door without you even having to place the order yourself. And you can even pick the frequency it comes. So for example, we get it every three weeks because that is how long it takes for Ranger to go through his food. And because I love AutoShip so much, I wanted to give my listeners a chance to try it out themselves. And so when you use the link in my description, you can get 30% off your first AutoShip through Chewy. And I think you will see why I have been using AutoShip for my dog Ranger for over three years now. It's just the easiest thing and now you get to try it for 30% off.